welcome to Zensylvania. My name is Eric Adrians, and I'll be your host. In Zensylvania, we explore motorcycle zen, literature, philosophy, and a variety of other topics. I'm not an expert in any of these things. In fact, it would probably be a mistake for me to claim to be an expert in anything at all. Here in Zensylvania, we try to maintain a beginner's mind during our explorations. With your feedback and participation, I hope Pennsylvania is the kind of place that keeps us, you and I, visiting often. Episode 21, Ghosts and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. The story had held us round the fire sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome, as on Christmas Eve in an old house a strange tale should essentially be. I remember no comment uttered till somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. The case, I may mention, was that of an apparition in just such an old house as had gathered us for the occasion. An appearance of a dreadful kind to a little boy sleeping in the room with his mother and waking her up in terror of it, waking her not to dissipate his dread and soothe him to sleep again, but to encounter also herself, before she had succeeded in doing so, the same sight that had shaken him. It was this observation that drew from Douglas not immediately, but later in the evening, a reply that had the interesting consequence to which I call attention. Someone else told a story not particularly effective, which I saw he was not following. This I took for a sign that he had himself something to produce and that we should only have to wait. We waited, in fact, till two nights later, but that same evening, before we scattered, we brought out what was in his mind quite agree in regard to Griffin's ghost, or whatever it was, that its appearing first to the little boy at so tender an age adds a particular touch. But it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved a child. If the child gives the effect of another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? We say, of course, somebody exclaimed, that they give two turns also that we want to hear about it. I can see Douglas there before the fire to which he had got up to present his back, looking down at his interlocutor with his hands in his pockets. Nobody but me till now has ever heard. It's quite too horrible. This naturally was declared by several voices to give the thing the utmost price, and our friend with the quiet art prepared his triumph by turning his eyes over the rest of us as going on. It's beyond everything. Nothing at all that I know touches it. It may seem rather odd that we would have begun this episode of Zensylvania with a brief reading from Henry James' classic Gothic ghost story, The Turn of the Screw, as we just have. 
The idea of the existence of ghosts as the disembodied soul or spirit or self of a person, usually dead, has probably been a part of human cultures very nearly as long as there have, in fact, been human cultures. The most ancient literary and religious texts that we currently have access to, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh tablets or the Pyramid texts, provide evidence of complicated belief systems which included concepts of the human or self existence after death or apart from the human body. It's reasonable therefore to assume that the concept of ghosts has been a part of human culture for indeed tens of thousands of years, perhaps longer. The notion of a self that may be divisible or separate from the physical body relies upon a minimally dualistic metaphysical system that is a mind as separate or separable from the physical processes and properties of the physical body. The term ghost in the machine was coined by Gilbert Ryle in 1949 to describe a dualistic metaphysical system where a mind may be viewed as separate from the body and occupier of the body. Interestingly, Old Norse culture allowed for a self which was comprised of four distinct components. The hammer was the skin or body which was capable of a certain degree of mutability. The huger, the thought or mind, was believed to be capable of separation from the body, the hammer, during sleep or trance. The filja was an external companion linked to a person's fate yet could leave the person after death. And the hamingya was believed to be the embodiment of a person's luck. The filia and the hamingya was separable from the person after their death again. The kind of mutability and divisibility that we could see in that old Norse culture of the self is an example where a dualistic metaphysical system was only minimally necessary and in some systems something even beyond that was required. The word ghost appears to have roots in the pro which predates most European languages, including English. The PIE root word geis, G-H-E-I-S, or geis, was used in words which described excitement, surprise, and fear. The Old English word gast referred variously to breath, spirits, and human beings. The word that we use today, ghost, appears to have been in use for somewhere between 600 and 700 years, the way we use it. Well, in this part of Zensylvania, we're going to begin to explore the notion of ghosts in Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. In previous episodes of the podcast, I discussed the first two chapters of the book and the wide variety of themes and ideas that were introduced. While review of those previous episodes may be of interest to you, I'm going to do my best to ensure that this episode won't require listening to those prior episodes to follow through. Picking up on our review of the book in Chapter 3, Persig firmly establishes Zen and the art as a kind of ghost or gothic story, and we'll be outlining how that happens. Up to this point in my examination of the book, I've avoided dips into later chapters of the book as I wanted to avoid getting ahead of the ideas that Persick presented when he presented them. In this episode, we're going to have to break with that a little bit as it seems necessary to explain why the idea of a ghost is so critical to explore. Whether we believe in ghosts or not is very much 
to the overall purpose of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, and indeed Persig's metaphysical system. Not only is it a consideration that has been with humanity as long as there has been a humanity, it is a consideration that gathers strange new meanings in our contemporary era. Gilbert Ryle's metaphor of the ghost in the machine is so thoroughly taken up by Robert Persig that he argued the Buddha may as easily reside in the gears and circuits of a motorcycle's transmission as a human body. And here in the 21st century, we have artificial intelligence computer programs that are on the edge of self-awareness, if they haven't already achieved this. If a sentient computer program could well reside in one set of microchips as some other, even simultaneously so, in what way does that reflect on what we believe about one of our most ancient and vexing of notions? What is a ghost exactly? Before we proceed with that question, let's get back to Henry James. We started this exploration with the first several paragraphs of James' The Turn of the Screw. That phrase is rather interesting when placed in context of Persig's work. The phrase, turn of the screw, is a metaphorical way to describe something that makes an already bad situation worse. We can imagine a turn of the screw as the mechanical tightening down of some torturous pressure, literally as in thumbscrews. Well, in his novel, Henry James increases the pressure presented by a ghastly and grisly presence going after a child, two children. The stakes are even higher. In his way, Persig then takes this metaphor and applies it to his story. The increased pressure for Persig, alienating mechanistic world in which he lives, a turning of the screw, which he portrays as certain ghosts which pursue both him and his son Chris, and by extension, us all. It's no small irony, of course, that this mechanical torture, this turning of the screw, is so fundamental to motorcycle maintenance as an activity, and to motorcycle maintenance as a metaphor for caring of the self. In the introduction to the 25th anniversary edition of Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Persig explained that Henry James' The Turn of the Screw had a significant influence on his writing of Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. According to Persig, he had attended a creative writing seminar in the 1950s, wherein an instructor explained that Turn of the Screw is not just a straightforward ghost story. Turn of the Screw is a novel, in Persig's words, in which a governess tries to shield her two protégés from a ghostly presence, but in the end fails and they are killed. Henry James was a novelist who lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Both his father, Henry James Sr., and his brother, William James, were philosophers. William James is renowned for his contributions to pragmatism, an area of philosophy which Robert Persig's philosophy is very comfortable with, as well as psychology. While it's important to differentiate between Henry and William James as different individuals with very different works, knowing that Persig cites one of the brothers as a significant influence on the writing of Zen and the Art inevitably brings the other into consideration as well. William James's role in psychology is one area of concern 
given that a significant feature of Persick's book considers mental health. William James was also a proponent of radical empiricism, a philosophical perspective that experience includes both particulars and relations between those particulars, and that therefore both deserve a place in our explanations. In concrete terms, any philosophical worldview is flawed if it stops at the physical level and fails to explain how meaning, values, and intentionality can This perspective is entirely consistent with ideas that John Dewey, another pragmatist philosopher, had expressed. In the Zensylvania Exploration of Quality, I examine similarities between Dewey's experience and Persig's quality. Whether by chance or by design, and I tend to think that design is at play, by referencing the Henry James novel, Persig telegraphed some comfort with comparisons of his ideas to those of William James, John Dewey, and other pragmatist philosophers. But let's get back to Henry's book. The Turn of the Screw was published in 1898 and had an extensive history of analysis even by the time that Persig had read the book in the 1950s and later published his Zen and the Art in the 70s. Persig's claim that he initially believed the story was just as it seemed to be, a straightforward ghost story. And when he attended the writing seminar, he says, he learned that James had written with ambiguous language, which allowed for either a straightforward, let us say, naive or accepting interpretation of the story or a different one. A second interpretation might be that it was not a ghost who kills the children, but the governess's hysterical belief that a ghost exists. It's an interesting note that Persig describes his early interpretation as the literal slash naive interpretation that the book received from its initial publications up until about the 1930s, when the ghosts in the story started to be considered as figments of the governess's imagination. This, of course, is all in the critical analysis contemporaneous to that time. It was the 1970s when text ambiguity was actively promoted as the writing method that allowed the interpretation. If Persig's claim is true that a writing instructor put him on that path in the early 1950s, then the instructor was well ahead of their established times. In the 25th edition introduction, Persig explains that the use of a first-person narrator allowed James to lock the reader's attention into whatever the narrator in particular has to say, and that this same trick is something Persic uses in Zen and the Art. Well, in this Zensylvania episode, we're going to explore some of the ways that Persic leveraged the ghost story techniques he learned in the 1950s, along with those. I'm going to read a plot synopsis of The Turn of the Screw currently available on Wikipedia because it serves as well as any other. For those who may have some objection to use of Wikipedia as a source, well, that may be fair and reasonable in some contexts, but I consider this to be a common knowledge detail and not worthy of the quibble. At some later time, I'll write my own plot synopsis based on a fresh reading of the book. I'll post that as an entry in my own Zensylvania.com, a Wikipedia, if you will, and when I do, I'll be sure to mention it. In the meantime, the common knowledge repository will have to do. It goes like this. 
On Christmas Eve, an unnamed narrator and some of their friends are gathered around a fire. One of them, Douglas, reads a manuscript written by his sister's late governess. The manuscripts the manuscript tells the story of her being hired by a man who has become responsible for his young niece and nephew following the deaths of their parents. He lives mainly in London and has a country house in Bly, Essex. The boy, Miles, is attending a boarding school while his younger sister, Flora, is living in Bly, where she is cared for by Mrs. Gross, the housekeeper. Flora's uncle, the governess's new employer, is uninterested in raising the children and gives her full charge, explicitly stating that she is not to bother him with communications of any sort. The governess travels to Bly and begins her duties. Miles returns from school for the summer just after a letter arrives from the headmaster stating that he has been expelled. Miles never speaks of the matter and the governess is hesitant to raise the issue, but is too charmed by the boy to want to press the issue. Soon after, around the grounds of the estate, the governess begins to see the figures of a man and woman whom she does not recognize. The figures come and go at will without being seen or challenged by other members of the household, and they seem to the governess to be supernatural. She learns from Mrs. Gross that the governess's predecessor, Miss Jessel, and another employee, Peter Quint, had had a close relationship. Before their deaths, Jessel and Quint spent much of their time with Flora and Miles, and the governess becomes convinced that the two children are aware of the ghost's presence. Without permission, Flora leaves the house while Miles is playing music for the governess. The governess notices Flora's absence and goes with Mrs. Gross in search. They find her on the shores of a nearby lake, and the governess is convinced that Flora has been talking to the ghost of Miss Jessel. When the governess finally confronts Flora, the girl denies seeing Miss Jessel and asks not to see the new governess again. Mrs. Gross takes Flora away to her uncle, leaving the governess with Miles, who, that night at last, talks to her about his expulsion. The ghost of Quint appears to the governess at the window. The governess shields Miles, who attempts to see the ghost. The governess tells Miles he is no longer controlled by the ghost, and then finds that Miles has died in her arms. From that synopsis, three features stand out for immediate comparison to Zen and the art. We have an unnamed narrator, a son who returns home for a summer holiday, overshadowed by some seemingly dark secret, and a child that dies in the arms of their protector. The fact that there is a dark secret with Miles for most of the book and that the governess is overseeing the children is a parallel to the relationship revealed between the narrator of Zen and the Art and the son, Chris. In other words, Persig and his son, Chris. The dying in the arms is echoed by Persig in his recital of Goethe's Erlkonig in chapter 5. The narrator is telling his companions that Chris has been experiencing troubling mental health issues and that he, the narrator, had put an end to Chris's visits to psychiatrists because they aren't kin. This reminded the narrator of Goethe's poem, which he describes as, A man is riding along a beach at night through the wind. 
It's a father with his son, whom he holds fast in his arm. He asks his son why he looks so pale, and the son replies, Father, don't you see the ghost? The father tried to reassure the boy it's only a bank of fog along the beach that he sees and only the rustling of the leaves in the wind that he hears. But the son keeps saying it is the ghost and father rides harder and harder through the night. And then the narrator explains that in the end, the child dies and the ghost wins. This description of the Earl Koenig is a vivid link between the inspiration that Persick took from the turn of the screw and the drama which unfolds on the motorcycle ride taken by the narrator and Chris. The reference to the Earl Koenig in Chapter 5 is the first major reinforcement of the ghost theme that was established in Chapter 3. The narrator's rejection of mainstream professional mental health care also connects to his comments in Chapter 3 with their skepticism and disalignment with science. Chapter 5 even has a brief dream sequence wherein the narrator's dream casts him and Chris in the roles of the father and son in the Earl Koenig. Persig is clearly emphasizing that this connection and comparison should be made. The fact that the narrator explicitly rejects professional psychology should seem odd to us in our contemporary parenting perspectives. It's our expectation that such a decision would be troubling and problematic. It's also interesting to consider the ironic associations to William James and psychology. Later in the book, of course, we find that the narrator had troubling experience of psychiatry given his personal history of having received electroconvulsive shock therapy. There's no reason to assume that he would view the healthcare professionals of his day with any kind eyes. We'll explore that in a later episode along with a variety of parallels to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Today we're going to try to stick to the ghosts. By establishing a parallel between the characters and the narrative methods of The Turn of the Screw, Persig invites similar analysis of the book's plot and scrutiny of the narrator's trustworthiness as a source of factual information, and indirectly a concern with radical empiricism and its relationship to ghosts of various kinds. If the governess is a questionable source of information, then so too is our narrator. Chapters 3 and 5 both feature settings that are classic ghost story fare. Chapter 3 builds up to the ghost story with the riders arriving in town on a dark and stormy night. Both chapters feature the requisite campfire scenes, and Chapter 5 also has that silvery gibbous moon. Who exactly the ghost may be and why it might be haunting this family motorcycle ride is not revealed at this point in the narrative directly, but there are considerable hints so far. Science is questioned. The validity of ghosts from a cultural perspective is questioned. Mental health is brought in as a concern, and we have this clear reference to the turn of the screw and that things may be just going on in the narrator's head. To get us started, I want to compare a couple of definitions of what a ghost is. I consulted several dictionaries, and the most common primary definition of a ghost is that it is a disembodied soul or the spirit of a dead person. And clearly there are a variety of usages of the word ghost which draw on its primary meaning. For example, the ghost of an image. It's a faint depression, a trace or outline. 
But let's stick with the primary definition for a moment that it's the disembodied spirit or soul of a person. With some word definitions, it can be extremely difficult not to find oneself running around in circles when attempting to pin down what exactly it means. To say that a ghost is a disembodied spirit or soul as a definition implies that one knows what those other words might mean. But what if you don't? If you don't know how that metaphysical system is supposed to work, well, you really can't get at what the word ghost means. The word ghost relies on the notion that there is something about people that can be separated from a physical body, which retains some kind of singular and identifiable consistency or relatedness to that physical body. It's a pretty extraordinary concept. In the usual definitions of the word ghost, it is almost impossible to avoid the indications that ghosts arise pretty much exclusively from dead persons. Indeed, in most understanding of ghosts, physical death of a person's body is a kind of prerequisite condition. The etymology of the word ghost suggests that it comes from a proto-Indo-European root word, geis, which implied fright, amazement, and fear. This is an important root meaning or implication of the word ghost, and we shouldn't let that stray too far from our attention while reviewing chapters 3 and 5. In chapter 3, the narrator advances a proposition that a ghost is something which has no matter and no energy. According to the narrator, this is the depiction of two key attributes of a ghost, and it fits in consistently with science and the laws of physics. Very shortly thereafter, he uses the same attributes to argue that the so-called laws of physics and numbers and other such things should also be disbelieved because they have no matter or energy of their own. They are, in fact, ghosts. Clearly, Persig is attempting to disrupt the reader's comfort with what it means to be a ghost and thereby the metaphysical principles that such a world relies upon. He wants to shake our confidence in in that same chapter, Persig takes this definition and rather uncomfortably for some people applies it to the laws of science. In what way do these laws exist that is different than ghosts? Well, one might say that the phenomena, which are described by the laws, would exist in physics regardless of whether we humans do in fact explain those phenomena in language or not. If a tree falls in the forest, there is a sound, whether there's an observing individual or not. Persig introduces the idea that things may be considered real within a cultural context. The real ghosts of one culture may not necessarily be the real ghosts of another culture. I think Persig is doing this to shake our confidence in how we view descriptions of reality put forward by mid-20th century science. This is done early in the book to allow Persig space to develop an alternate depiction of how reality works. In the spirit of the turn of the screw, in this case a culture heavily influenced if not quite dominated by science, may not actually have any ghosts other than those which we ourselves embody. Over the course of Zen and the Art, it becomes increasingly clear that the narrator of the story is haunted by the ghost of an earlier self. In Persig's case, this haunting is depicted as a sharply real situation based on the severing of one version of himself from another version via electroconvulsive shock therapy. 
the narrator is telling the story of Persig's life as though he did not directly experience it and only has access via documents and notes and occasional flashes of recollection. Well, there's a question in there about how we actually have access to our former selves. Is the self that you are right now informed by your memories, by photos that you have, by written journals, by objects that you surround you with? In what way is the version that you are yourself informed by earlier versions of who you were? For the narrator, the ghost which haunts him is not only in his mind, but in fact is his mind. This is a way to examine and critique a concept of dualism which allows the separation of mind and body. If the so-called self which occupied the body of Robert Maynard Persig had been driven out by electroconvulsive shock therapy, is it possible for that self to have continued to exist as a kind of ghost or as Persig might say as a static pattern? And if so, where does that existence take place? If not, in what way is that earlier version of the self that is capable of producing a ghost? In what way are memories, ideas, or other phenomena anything other than ghosts? The narrator makes an unexpected declaration that he claims that nothing outside of the mind exists. And this is rather like the position taken by George Berkeley in the 1700s. Berkeley's subjective realism, also known as empirical idealism, argues that objects in the physical world cannot exist without being perceived. Berkeley's perspective is a kind of monism wherein everything that exists is comprised of some single fundamental thing. In Berkeley's case, this seems to be a version of mind, whether that's a deity or human mind. We must also consider the various alternative positions presented by William James, for example, the radical empiricism, a philosophical perspective that we talked about earlier. The point here is to shake our confidence in models of reality which rely upon or tolerate dualism. The idea that nothing exists outside of our mind is ridiculous, but that doesn't mean that some philosophers who proposed such an idea weren't well regarded in their own time, let alone today. A reasonable person must also question whether the argument that mind only exists as a consequence of materiality, the opposite extreme position of dualism, may also be considered ridiculous. What makes the proposition that mind only exists as a consequence of physical processes exists within our culture as a result of ghost-like propositions which do not have any physical reality in themselves. I recently had the opportunity to watch the video of an experiment wherein a scientist attempted to fill a Klein bottle. The presenter stated that a number of directly observable things, such as contained volume of a Klein bottle, may not be readily obvious to mathematics. Mathematics is a language that may be used to depict the world, but that language must be worked out over time by observers who develop the ability to depict a particular truth but may not understand the given language before they do so. This is the lesson of striving toward an accurate, necessary, and true explanation of the universe. Languages, whether they're Greek, 
Chinese, English, mathematics, or something else altogether are developed over time to explain complicated physical and conceptual portions of reality. What is the mathematical terminology for tiger? As far as I know, there isn't one. Yet I can say tiger and the vast majority of English-speaking people will know exactly what I'm referring to. I want to round out this episode of Zensylvania with a reading or two from chapters 3 and 5 describing these ghost-like situations. It goes like this. By the time we are out of the Red River Valley, the storm clouds are everywhere and almost upon us. John and I have discussed the situation in Breckenridge and decided to keep going until we have to stop. That shouldn't be long now. The sun is gone, the wind is blowing cold, and a wall of differing shades of grey looms around us. It seems huge, overpowering. The prairie here is huge, but above is the hugeness of this ominous gray mass ready to descend in frightening. We are traveling at its mercy now. When and where it will come is nothing we can, can, can control. All we can do is watch it move in closer and closer. Where the darkest gray has come down to the ground, a town that has been seen earlier, some small buildings and a water tower, has disappeared. It will be on us soon now. I don't see any towns ahead, and we are just going to have to run for it. I pull up alongside John and throw my hand ahead in a speed-up gesture. He nods and opens up. I let him get ahead a little, then pick up to his speed. The engine responds beautifully. 70, 80, 85. We are really feeling the wind now, and I drop my head to cut down the resistance. 90. The speedometer needle swings back and forth, but the tack reads a steady 9,000, about 95 miles an hour, and we should hold this speed moving. Too fast to focus on the shoulder of the road now. I reach forward and Flip the headlight switch, just for safety. But is needed anyway. It's getting very dark. We whiz through the flat open land. Not a car anywhere. Hardly a tree. But the road is smooth and clean. And the engine now has a packed, high RPM sound that says it's right on. It gets darker and darker. A flash and kawam, a thunder. One right on top of the other. That shook me, and Chris has got his head against my back now. A few warning drops of rain. At this speed, they're like needles. A second flash, wham, and everything brilliant. And then, in the brilliance of the next flash, that farmhouse, that windmill. Oh my God, he's been here. Throttle off, this is his road. A fence and trees and the speed drops to 70, and then 60, and then 55, and I hold it there. Why are we slowing down? Chris shouts. Too fast. No, it isn't. I nod yes. The house and water tower have gone by, and then a small draining ditch appears, and a crossroad leading off to the horizon. Yes, that's right, I think. That's exactly right. They're way ahead of us, Chris Holler. Speed up. I turn my head from side to side. Why not, he shawlers. 
not safe. They're gone. They'll wait. Speed up. No, I shake my head. It's just a feeling. On a cycle, you trust them, and we stay at 55. The first rain begins now, but up ahead I see the lights of a town. I knew it would be there. When we arrive, John and Sylvia are under the first tree by the road waiting for us. What happened to you? Slowed down. Well, we know that. Something wrong? No, let's get out of the rain. John says there is a motel at the other end of town, but I tell him there's a better one if you turn right at a row of cottonwoods a few blocks down. We turn at the cottonwoods and travel a few blocks and a small motel appears. Inside the office, John looks round and says, this is a good place. When were you here before? I don't remember, I say. Then how did you know about this? Intuition. He looks at Sylvia and shakes his head. Sylvia has been watching me silently for some time. She notices my hands are unsteady as I sign in. You look awfully pale, she says. Did that lightning shake you up? No. You look like you'd seen a ghost. John and Chris look at me and I turn away from them to the door. It's still raining hard, but we make a run for it to the rooms. The gear on the cycle is protected and we, we wait until the storm passes over before removing it. After the rain stops, the sky lightens a little. But from the motel courtyard, I see the cottonwoods, that second darkness, that of night, is about to come. We walk into town, have supper, and by the time we get back, the fatigue of the day is really on me. We rest almost motionless in the metal armchairs of the motel courtyard, slowly working down a pint of whiskey that John bought with some mix from the motel cooler. It goes down slowly and agreeably. A cool night wind rattles the leaves of the cottonwoods along the road. Chris wonders what we should do next. Nothing tires this kid. The newness and strangeness of the motel surroundings excite him, and he wants us to sing songs as they did at camp. We're not very good at songs, John says. Let's tell stories then, Chris says. He thinks for a while. Do you know any good ghost stories? All the kids in our cabin used to tell ghost stories at night. You tell us some, John says. And he does. They are kind of fun to hear. Some of them I haven't heard since I was his age. I tell him so, and Chris wants to hear some of mine, but I can't remember any. After a while he says, Do you believe in ghosts? No, I say. Why not? Because they are unscientific. The way I say this makes John smile. They contain no matter, I continue, and have no energy, and therefore, according to the laws of science, do not exist except in people's minds. The whiskey, the fatigue, and the wind and the trees start mixing in my mind. Of course, I add, the laws of science contain no matter and have no energy either, and therefore do not exist except in people's minds. It's best to be completely scientific about the whole thing and refuse to believe in either ghosts or the laws of science. That way you're safe. That doesn't leave you very much to believe in, but that's scientific too. I don't know what you're talking about, Chris says. I'm being kind of facetious. Chris gets frustrated when I talk like this, but I 
don't think it hurts him. One of the kids at YMCA camp says he believes in ghosts. And he was just spoofing you. No, he wasn't. He said that when people haven't been buried right, their ghosts come back to haunt them. He really believes in that. He was just spoofing you, I repeat. What's his name, Sylvia says. Tom Whitebear. John and I exchanged, suddenly recognizing the same thing. Oh, Indian, he says. I laugh. I guess I'm going to have to take that back a little. I say, I was thinking of European ghosts. What's the difference? John roars with laughter. He's got you, he says. I think a little and say, well, Indians sometimes have a different way of looking at things, which I'm not saying is completely wrong. Science isn't part of the Indian tradition. Tom Whitebear said his mother and dad told him not to believe in all that stuff, but he said his grandmother whispered it was true anyway, so he believes it. He looks at me pleadingly. He really does want to know things sometimes. Being facetious is not being a very good father. Sure, I say, reversing myself, I believe in ghosts too. Now John and Sylvia look at me peculiarly. I see I'm not going to get out of this one easily and brace myself for a long explanation. It's completely natural, I say, to think of Europeans who believed in ghosts or Indians who believed in ghosts as ignorant. The scientific point of view has wiped out every other view to a point where they all seem primitive. So that if a person today talks about ghosts or spirits, he's considered ignorant or maybe nutty. John nods affirmatively and I continue. My own opinion is that the intellect of modern man isn't that superior. IQs aren't that much different. Those Indian and medieval men were just as intelligent as we are. But the context in which they thought was completely different. Within that context of thought, ghosts and spirits are quite as real as atoms, particles, photons, and quants are to modern man. In that sense, I believe in ghosts. Modern man has his ghosts and spirits too, you know. What? Well, the laws of physics and the logic, the number system, the principles of algebraic substitution, these are ghosts. We just believe in them so thoroughly they seem real. They seem real to me, John says. I don't get it, says Chris. So I go on. For example, it seems completely natural to presume that gravitation and the law of gravitation existed before Isaac Newton. It would sound nutty to think that until the 17th century there was no gravity. Of course. So when did this law start? Has it always existed? John is frowning and wondering what I'm getting at. What I'm driving at, I say, is the notion that before the beginning of the earth, before the sun and the stars were formed, before the primal generation of anything, the law of gravity existed. Sure. Sitting there, having no mass of its own, no energy of its own, not in anyone's mind because there wasn't anyone, not in space because there was no space either, not anywhere, this law of gravity still existed. Now John seems not so sure. If that law of gravity existed, I say, I honestly don't know what a thing has to do to be non-existent. It seems to me that the law of gravity has passed every test of non-existence there is. You cannot think of a single attribute of non-existence that the law of gravity didn't have, or a single scientific attribute of existence it did have. 
and yet it is still common sense to believe that it existed. John says, I guess I'd have to think about it. Well, I predict that if you think about it long enough, you will find yourself going round and round and round and round until you finally reach only one possible rational intelligent conclusion. The law of gravity and gravity itself did not exist before Isaac Newton. No other conclusion makes sense. And what that means, I say, before he can interrupt, and what that means is that the law of gravity existed nowhere except in people's heads. It's a ghost. We are all of us very arrogant and conceited about running down other people's ghosts, but just as ignorant and barbaric and superstitious about our own. While that previous reading was from chapter 3 of Zen and the Art, this next section comes from chapter 5. The narrator explains that his son Chris's behavior may be related to some recent mental health issues. I'm going to pick it up when that revelation is made to his writing companions. This spring, they diagnosed it as the beginning symptoms of mental illness. What? John says. It's too dark to see Sylvia or John now, or even the outlines of the hills. I listen for sounds in the distance, but hear none. I don't know what to answer, and so say nothing. When I look hard, I can make out stars overhead, but the fire in the front of us makes it hard to see them. The night all around is thick and obscure. My cigarette is down to my fingers, and I put it out. I didn't know that, Sylvia's voice says. All traces of anger are gone. We wondered why you brought him instead of your wife, she says. I'm glad you told us. John shoves some of the unburned ends of the wood into the fire. Sylvia says, What do you suppose the cause is? John's voice rasps as if to cut off, but I answer, I don't know. Causes and effects don't seem to fit. Causes and effects are a result of thought. I would think mental illness comes before thought. This doesn't make sense to them, I'm sure. It doesn't make much sense to me, and I'm too tired to try to think it out and give up. What do the psychiatrists think? John asks. Nothing. I stopped it. Stopped it? Yes. Is that good? I don't know. There's no rational reason I can think of for saying it's not good. Just a mental block of my own. I think about it and all the good reasons for it and make plans for an appointment and even look for the phone number and then the block hits and it's just like a door slammed shut. That doesn't sound right. No one else thinks so either, I suppose. I can't hold out forever. But why? Sylvia asks. I don't know why. It's just that... I don't know. They're not kin. It's a surprising word, I think to myself. Never used it before. Not of kin. Sounds like hillbilly talk. Not of a kind. Same root. Kindness. Too. They can't have real kindness toward him. They're not his kin. That's exactly the feeling. Old word, so ancient it's almost drowned out. What a change through the centuries. Now anybody can be kind, and everybody's supposed to be. Except that long ago it was something you were born into and couldn't help. Now it's just a faked up attitude half the time, like teachers the first day of class. But what do they really know? 
about kindness who are not kin. It goes over and over again through my thoughts. Mein Kind, my child. There it is in another language. Mein Kinder. Strange feeling from that. What are you thinking about? Sylvia asks. An old poem by Goethe. It must be 200 years old. I had to learn it a long time ago. I don't know why I should remember it now, except... The strange feeling comes back. How does it go? Sylvia asks. I try to recall. A man is riding along a beach at night, through the wind. It's a father with his son, whom he holds fast in his arm. He asks his son why he looks so pale, and the son replies, Father, don't you see the ghost? The father tried to reassure the boy it's only a bank of fog along the beach that he sees, and only the rustling of the leaves in the wind that he hears. But the son keeps saying it is the ghost, and the father rides harder and harder through the night. How does it end? In failure, death of the child, the ghost wins. The wind blows light up from the coals, and I see Sylvia look at me startled. But that's another land and another time, I say. Here, life is the end, and the ghosts have no meaning. I believe that. I believe in all this, too, I say, looking at the darkened prairie, although I'm not sure of what it all means yet. I'm not sure of much of anything these days. Maybe that's why I talk so much. Thank you for joining me in this part of Zensylvania. I hope you've enjoyed your time listening to the podcast as much as I did putting it together. You can find text versions of Zensylvania stories and essays at zensylvania.com. If you've enjoyed the content you've heard so far, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also love to hear your thoughts. My email address is zensylvaniapodcast at gmail.com, or you may wish to use the link in the episode description box to leave a voice message for use in this or a future episode. If you'd like to support the Zensylvania podcast, you can find us on Patreon or buy me a coffee. Thank you again for joining me in Zensylvania. It's a state of mind. <laughs>